Welcome to Journey in the Word with Pastor Randy Mosher of Calvary Chapel of the Cumberland Valley. We are located in Hagerstown, Maryland. Please join us every weekday as our pastor takes us verse by verse through a book of the Bible. Today, we're picking up in the Gospel of Luke, where the writer emphasizes the ministry that Jesus had to the poor and hurting and our need for a Savior. All of these being validated by the Old Testament prophecies about Christ. So if you're able, grab your Bibles and join us as we continue our journey in the Word. And we will have the confidence that naturally comes from knowing that what we are doing is pleasing to God. And so what is there to fear from men? Why would we pay much attention to the criticisms of men over what we're doing if what we're doing aligns with the will of God and is a stated word? Why would we fear? Why would we back down? You know, I, I will just tell you, and just to go off on a personal note on this, it, but it's the reason why I've walked confidently in, in, in doing the things the way I've been doing them in the midst of this COVID situation here at the church. I'm sure that I have critics. I'm sure I do. I'd be a fool, you know, not to think that there aren't critics of this, but I've walked confidently in the things that I've been doing because, number one, I believe I'm walking in submission to exactly what the Lord has asked me to do. I have not done things because the government has told me to do it. But I've done things because the Lord has asked me to do it. Uh, but from the very beginning, I've had that peace about what God has has called me to do in the midst of our situation, things that, that he's impressed upon my heart that he would use for his purposes and, and as a witness to our community and to, to people who we don't even see who are watching us. Is they're watching churches across the country, but they're watching us, unbelievers that can look and see and that the Lord has said that if I obey him, he'll use that. And secondly, I've also been obedient to what I believe God's Word clearly commands me to do. You know, as I look at Scripture, Peter seems very clear in communicating God's heart in regard to what should be our attitude and response to the mandates that government authorities impose on us, regardless of how we feel about those things. Here's what Peter says. First Peter chapter 2, verses 13 through 17. Therefore, submit yourselves to every ordinance of man for the Lord's sake, whether to the king as supreme or to governors as to those who are sent by him for the punishment of evildoers and for the praise of those who do good. For this is the will of God, that by doing good you may put to silence the ignorance of foolish men, as free yet not using liberty as a cloak for vice, but as bondservants of God. Honor all people, love the brotherhood, fear God, honor the king. As I shared some time ago, you know, I... I'm not doing what I'm doing in ministry or in my life personally for the sake of the government, but I'm doing, I'm doing it for the sake of the Lord. I'm doing it for the sake of the Lord. I honor my king with a capital K by honoring the king with a small K, which is what Peter says to do. In other words, I'm doing what I'm doing because this is what God, in his word, has clearly stated that I'm to do. Now, I understand that there are those who say that this passage doesn't apply to this situation that we're in, and they point to Acts chapter 5, verse 29. You all know that verse, right? Acts chapter 5 and verse 29, but Peter and the other apostles answered and said, we ought to obey God rather than men. You'll hear that verse used a lot today. And you know what? I'm not the judge of others who have a conviction about that passage and that verse, but I do not agree 
I do not in good conscience or conviction agree with their conclusions. The statement recorded in Acts chapter 5 and verse 29, taken in its context, is given in response to what Peter and the other disciples were being commanded, specifically commanded, to do by the Jewish religious leadership, something that was completely against the will of God and in contradiction to the calling that he had placed upon them. The verses which come before that particular verse we love to quote gives us the complete context, and here's what it says. Acts chapter 5, beginning in verse 27 through verse 28, says this, And when they had brought them, they set them before the council, and the high priest asked them, saying, Did we not strictly command you not to teach in this name? What name? Talking about the name of Jesus. And look, you filled Jerusalem with your doctrine and intend to bring this man's blood on us. Now, listen to verse 29, but Peter and the other apostles answered and said, we ought to obey God rather than men. The Jewish leadership was forbidding them in any form, in any form from teaching in Jesus' name and from promoting the doctrines associated with Jesus and Christianity. And given those circumstances, it was quite right for Peter to refuse such a command as it was against the express will of God. But folks... I mean, think about this for a minute. If anyone, including government officials, commanded me, you, to stop preaching, to stop proclaiming the name of Jesus, or to stop teaching the doctrines of Christianity from stop teaching the Word of God, I think we'd have no choice but to ignore men and obey God, right? I think you'd agree with me on that. But no one has given us that command. No one has told us that. Like everyone else, I don't like the constraints that I'm having to live with or or that I'm placed under in order to minister or to serve the Lord. No one has yet, in the process, no one has yet forbid me or any of us to do what Peter and the others were being forbidden from doing in that moment. I can, you can, we can preach and declare Jesus' name. We can go out and I'm going to do it today, right outside, doing it right now, doing it online, doing it everywhere. We can do this. We can go out and we can share. No one's forbid us from doing that. No one's forbid us from doing what Peter and the other disciples were being forbidden from doing. We can preach and teach Jesus. We just need to adjust the format. That's a different issue. We can meet, but with some limitations placed upon us for a season. But let's be clear and let's be honest about this. Getting the emotion out of it, which is really what drives this argument, We're not being forbidden from doing these things. So I cannot in good conscience agree with those who believe we need to ignore the clear command given by God in 1 Peter chapter 2, verses 13 through 17. There's nothing that's negated what Peter has said to us. There's no scriptural basis for me to refuse to honor the mandates established by our government. I believe to do so actually puts me in conflict with God's will as expressed in his word and to me personally. So while I'm sure that there are those who are critical of how I'm ministering right now, like Jesus, I simply choose to ignore those criticisms and to walk confidently in how God has called me as his servant and under shepherd to walk in the midst of it all. My focus is on the Lord and what he wants. It's not on men. It's not on women on what they want. However, and here's the point, not knowing God's desire, not knowing his word, Not walking fully in it would make ignoring the voices of men much, much harder. 
What basis do you have if you're not knowing God's will, if you're not knowing his word? What basis do you have for ignoring the voices of men? Where's the confidence? You're not going to have it. And that's the takeaway for your life in Christ. If you are not living your life in submission to God's will and in obedience to his word, assuming you know God's word, these days that's a big assumption. I'm not saying that for you guys, but just in our society as a whole. I believe there's a famine of God's word in the land, to be honest with you, as Amos said there would be one day, you know. But but knowing God's word, if you're not living in submission to his will, if you're not walking in obedience to his word, you will have a very hard time ignoring all the voices of men when they rise up in criticism of what you're doing spiritually. You'll have a hard time. You'll find yourself responding and catering to the voices of men more than you will to the voice of God. Know God's will for your life and submit to it. Know God's word and walk in it. And as you do this, you're going to find that the voices of men, it ain't going to matter to you much more anymore, just as it didn't to Jesus. He could have cared less. And his disciples will get to that place too, where they're going to care less because they know his will, they know his word, and they're walking confidently in it. Jesus knew the Father's will, he knew his word, and so he walked confidently in obedience to the Father despite the criticisms that men levied at him. And so too will you and I. Amen? Look on at verse 6 again. He says this, Now it happened on another Sabbath also that he entered the synagogue and taught, and a man was there whose right hand was withered. So the scribes and Pharisees watched him closely, whether he would heal on the Sabbath, that they might find an accusation against him. And so Luke tells us, here they come again. These guys are coming to, to get Jesus one more time. You know, to find a reason to accuse him, to find a reason to 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 discredit him. And this time, it, Luke tells us that there's a guy with a withered right hand. And you can tell Luke's a physician based on the description he gives, right? He knew exactly what was going on. But what's significant in what he's describing is more than just the physical ailment. But a withered right hand, you know what that meant to a person in that society? The inability to fully work to be fully employed, to be able to make a living, to do these kinds of things. So this man, he's in a very bad situation. He desperately needs a spiritual touch by God. And here is God in the flesh standing before him and teaching. It's the perfect setting for a miracle. However, instead of anticipation, excitement, which should be all over the place as the people see the man and the Pharisees see this man, they should be excited about this. Here's Jesus. Here's this man. They ought to be just waiting in anxious anticipation for the miracle that they know is going to come. But, but Luke paints a completely different picture, one of negativity and entrapment, right? Here are the Pharisees. They see this man, but all they're thinking about is what they can do to use him against Jesus. They could care less about this man's condition. They could care less about his terrible circumstances. They have no compassion for him whatsoever. In this moment, he's nothing more than an object, a tool to be used for them to achieve their ends against Jesus. And how sad that is. How sad and heartless and cold the religion of men is. Because that's what happens. But remember, the religion of men is not the religion of God. The religion of God is what the Old Testament prophets like Hosea declared. Hosea said in Hosea 6.6, 6, For I desire mercy and not sacrifice, and the knowledge of God more than burnt offerings. 
The religion of God is what Jesus has already pointed out on a previous Sabbath when he quoted from Isaiah and he said this, the spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to preach the gospel to the poor. He has sent me to heal the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovery of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed, to proclaim the acceptable year of the Lord. And now here is Jesus standing before them, the very religion of God himself. And the Pharisees will miss the heart of God when it comes to religion. They're missing it. Don't you miss it. Don't you miss seeing what Jesus is doing here? Look at verse 8. He says next, But he knew their thoughts and said to the man who had the withered hand, Arise and stand here. And he arose and stood. Jesus knew exactly what these guys were up to. He knew exactly. He knew their very thoughts. He knew their intent. He knew their manipulations. He knew it all. And he knew how they were thinking about how they could use this man to entrap him. And knowing this, Jesus is still not deterred, not one little bit. He just keeps on moving. In fact, he's even emboldened even more. He calls for the man to come up here. He doesn't just say, hey, I'm going to heal you. He says, come up here. In other words, come up and stand beside me so that everybody's looking at this guy. So everybody sees what Jesus is about to do. Nothing being done in secret. Boy, I hope we have a bold form of Christianity like that. You know, not a boastful kind, but bold in this sense. Never hiding, doing right things. Never hiding it in order to escape the criticism and the scrutiny of people. May we boldly stand upon what we know to be the right things to do and leave others to God as we do them. We don't, we, we don't have to be prideful, like I said. We don't have to boast, but, but we must shy away from, we must not shy away from doing what's right and to even doing it when it could bring criticism to us for doing it, you know? And as you take that stand, remember this. There's a promise given to you in Hebrews 13, 6. Hebrews 13, 6, the Lord, 6 says, the Lord is my helper. I will not fear. What can man do to me? The promise is boldness. The Lord will meet you in boldness because you'll have nothing to fear if you're standing with the Lord. Well, look at what Jesus does next. Look at verse 9. And Jesus said to them, I will ask you one thing. Is it lawful on the Sabbath to do good or to do evil, to save life or to destroy? And so with this simple question, Jesus gets at the very heart of what the Sabbath is all about. And he gets at the very heart of these men that are so spiritually perverse and corrupt. What's the Sabbath for if it's not for setting people free and giving them rest? It's what Jesus is saying. You see, for these men, they had wrongly concluded that to heal on the Sabbath was another violation of the law, which prohibited working on the Sabbath. And Jesus is saying to them, is it a violation of the prohibition to work if it achieves a goal of what the Sabbath is all about? The Sabbath is about rest and refreshment and restoration. So how can it be a violation of the law to show compassion, to save or preserve life, of a person that God wants to touch and heal. It's actually a work of God to do that. And as such, it doesn't violate anything as God is always permitted to work as he chooses, since as Jesus already pointed out, God is the one who established the Sabbath, so he can use it for whatever purpose he wants. And when men are doing God's work, they're not in any way violating any spiritual laws or regulations, but they're in fact honoring God by doing his will. And God's will, unlike that of the Pharisees, is to meet the needs of human beings, even on the Sabbath. In effect, Jesus was really asking the Pharisees, who is in violation of the Sabbath? Me for healing this guy? Or you for caring less about him 
and spending your time thinking about how you can murder me. So who's really violating the intent of the Sabbath? Well, look at what Jesus now does in verse 10. And when he had looked around at them all, you'll note Mark in his account, he tells us when he had looked around at them with anger. (laughs) Mark says Jesus was mad at this point. Jesus knew that these guys could not get past their own ideas about spirituality and the law that they'd created, and they could not get away even for a moment from their intense hatred of Jesus, which was a violation of the law of God in and of itself, which Jesus will later call them out for. Remember, he says to them in Matthew's account that you say you don't murder, but who of you has ought in your heart? Who of you, you know, has said raka? of your brother, you fool. You've committed murder. It's right there in your heart. They're committing it, you see. He's going to call them out for him. But this really make him mad. You know what? The difference between the anger that Jesus is showing and the anger of these men is that unlike these men, Jesus' anger was not accompanied by hatred and a desire to murder, but theirs was. <laughs> and so when he had looked around at them all, here's what happens When he had looked around, verse 10, at them all, he said to the man, stretch out your hand. And he did so, and his hand was restored as whole as the other. But they were filled with rage and discussed with one another what they might do to Jesus. And so Jesus now commands this man to stretch out his withered hand. And the man acting in faithful obedience stretches out his hand. Once again, we're reminded that obedience demonstrates true faith, right? It demonstrates true. If I believe, I'm going to obey. And his hand is restored. In fact, it's restored, it says, as whole as the other. Now, you'd think that this would be a moment of celebration and and rejoicing and thanksgiving by everybody that's present and gets to see this happen. But Luke tells us that this was not the case with the Pharisees. Instead of rejoicing and praising God for this miraculous event, instead of rejoicing with this man over the healing that he's just received, these cold-hearted religionists, they're filled with rage, (laughs) They're filled with rage. They're, they're furious over what Jesus just did for this man or on the Sabbath, and they begin plotting among themselves as to what they might do to Jesus. This, this, it's in, I don't know the words. It's incredible. Their response is incredible. There's this suffering man, his paralyzed arm is starting to work again, and yet the Pharisees are furious because Jesus just healed him on the Sabbath. Talk about getting your priorities mixed up. You know, but that's what religion does. That's what religionists do. They get their priorities mixed up and, and, and they get angry at things that are, are truly of God because it conflicts with the things that they've created for themselves about how God thinks, you know, how they think spirituality should work. And, and for spiritual legalists, mercy, compassion, grace, love, healing, deliverance, none of these things are a priority for the kind of spirituality they promote. For the spiritual legalist, for the rigid religionist, people do not matter because what matters most to them is form and content of the religious system that they've established for themselves. People matter only in so much as people are the vehicle to the religious system that they've established. You know, I don't want to, we're running out of time and I need to cut this off, but I, I just want to share one more thing from my heart for you guys and just do with this what you want. And maybe it's just me, but... I'm really troubled by a recent quote made by, and I'm not going to talk about who, made by a well-known pastor who I've respected over the years on some things. I don't agree with everything he does, but I, you know, I don't just, you know, he's got nothing in my book that I see him as terrible. 
or anything like that, but, but they're promoting a quote that he's made. It's all over social media now, and it's almost boastful when I see it, and it troubles me. And it's, it's over the COVID and the restrictions that have affected churches and activities. And the quote, usually presented in the form of a meme, says this, the church does not exist to protect people from the flu. The church exists to protect people from eternal punishment in hell. Maybe you've heard it. I'm sorry, but that statement has not set well with me since I first read it. There's something inherently pharisaical about it. Why I fully agree that the church's primary responsibility is to share the hope of the gospel with men and women, with people in our world who so desperately need to, 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 to know that there is eternal judgment. But how can we not also care about their health and their well-being? How can we not care about that? This is Pharisees, not Jesus. The man's condition did not matter to the Pharisees when it conflicted with their ideas about the form of the system of religion that they ascribed to. You don't, you don't heal people physically on the Sabbath, even if they need to be healed. You don't change the format because doing so can lead to wrong spiritual views and practices by people who will then be accountable to God and face eternal judgment by Him. Physical healing is not important as religious format to the Pharisees and to the Pharisaical way of thinking. So I just don't buy it, nor do I believe that Jesus buys into that kind of thinking. Both are possible. Both are possible. We can show the compassion of God by protecting and preserving life and in the process open hearts to, to, to what is ultimately what God wants to show them, what he wants to teach them, what he wants to reveal to them about himself more powerfully, able to speak more powerfully into their lives because of the grace and the compassion that we've shown them by caring for them. Jesus disregarded the, 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 the form of religion these men so adhered to in order to heal and restore a man. And that simple act, which violated all acceptable religious norms of that day, spoke more to that man and to the others who had gathered and were witnesses of it than any words that Jesus could have spoken to them about escape from eternal damnation. In fact, for many of them, it made his words even more potent. And the Pharisees knew it. That's why they're enraged. They knew it. It wasn't simply that, that Jesus broke the law as they saw the law, but it was that in breaking their ideas about the law, his message took on an even greater power and relevance to the people. So I don't know. Maybe it's just me. <laughs> but, but I honestly believe that while the church does not exist to keep people from getting COVID by caring for people and doing right things to protect people, even when it's not popular, especially when it's not popular, our message about Jesus' love for them and the provision that he's made for their eternal protection takes on greater meaning and relevance because we're demonstrating the love that Jesus has for people above religious form and format. We cannot be so rigid to our formats that we miss reflecting the true heart that God has for people in this time in which we're living. Let's keep our priorities straight in the midst of it. Well, one more important note, and we'll close. But Mark reveals something significant as accountant about this moment. He tells us in Mark 3, 6, that the consultation that the Pharisees held wasn't just among themselves, but it was a consultation they held between themselves and the Herodians, 
who were also present. Now, the Herodians were a, pol a political group comprised mostly of Hellenistic Jews, Greek-speaking Jews, right? Greek cultural Jews who favored submitting to the authority of the Herods and to Rome, all for the purpose of attaining political favor and power. Just put them at odds with the religious Jews of Israel. Normally, these guys did not get along. The Pharisees and the Herodians, they did not get along. So that's what makes Mark's account of this in his gospel so significant, because it tells us that all of a sudden, these two parties who are at odds are uniting. It's the old saying being played out, the enemy of my enemy is my friend. And that's what's taking place in both groups. From this point on, Jesus is going to be the enemy, and they will unite to deal with him. You know, a lot of people hold the view of Jesus being as the great uniter, of our world, having come to be a uniter of people in our world. And he is a uniter for those of us who are in Jesus, or at least he should be. There should be unity in the body of Christ, universal, amongst those who believe. But for the world in general, you can't get away from what Jesus says. You know, even in John chapter 17, where he basically, you know, not John 17, I'm sorry, uh, in Matthew, where he says, you know, don't think that I came to bring peace on the earth. I didn't come to bring peace, but a sword. What's he talking about? He's talking about division that's going to occur because of who he is and what he is. It's going to divide people because his word is truth. Like I said, we don't want to mad at us, but if they get mad at the word of God, that's a completely different issue, and people will get angry at the word of God, and it will divide. It'll divide households. It divided my household when I put my faith in Jesus. My mother mocked me, and suddenly we were at odds, and I was trying to be loving, and yet that we were at odds because of my beliefs. She wanted me to renounce my beliefs. I couldn't do that. And so it does. Jesus didn't come to bring peace to this earth, not yet. There will be division. But, but in that, we will find that people oftentimes will unify to deal with us and to deal with the message of Christ. And we should not be surprised by that. And so we see it here being played out with Jesus. And, and that dynamic is happening with these religious groups. But he doesn't care. And nor should we. Amen. Thank you for joining us for another episode of Journey in the Word, a verse-by-verse -verse teaching ministry of Calvary Chapel of the Cumberland Valley. If you would like to listen to more teachings or find out more information about us, go to www.journeyintheword.org. That's www.journeyintheword.org. Thanks again for listening. We hope you'll tune in for our next episode as we continue our Journey in the Word.